Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Matt Embry from RX Bandits. RXB was one of the most influential bands on me as a young musician in my 20s, so we're going to talk all about them, as well as Matt's spin-offs, side projects, solo work, and our mutual love for old-school hip-hop. This is Matt Embry from RX Bandits. Yo. Hello. First of all, welcome to the show. I, I really appreciate you coming on. We've been playing tag for a long time, trying to set it up, and... Uh, it means a lot. So, yeah, um, man, you bet. I have a particular love for your band. RX Band is, is sort of a unique balance of intellectual yet emotional and technical yet musical. And there's just really something special. Like your band fills a sort of void that not a lot of bands do. I will tell you just my introduction to the band. I was the last of my friends to hear you guys because they all went to see Tsunami Bomb. And they're like, oh man, you missed this awesome band that they were with. It wasn't until, I don't know, a year or two later, and my bass player showed me uh, the resignation. And you guys just held a special place in my heart. I don't want to belabor your origins, because I think every interview does that. I guess I want to start with the album Progress, because to me that feels like sort of the first album where you guys sound like you. I mean, in my estimation, that really is our first, like, real record. Yeah. We were all teenagers before it. You know, I was only 20 when I recorded Progress. Really? So the records before it are, like, literally 16 and 17 years old. Yeah. And to me, they're more like demos. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of wish they were just demos and they weren't available for the world forever on the Internet. But (laughs) I feel the same way, man. Like, I wish that... (laughs) Like my high school band and, you know, people that have known me for a long time, I was like, I wish you hadn't heard the really early stuff and that I was just kind of workshopping that behind the scenes because you still have that impression of like, oh, yeah, that's that guy when really I want you to hear the new shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, straight up, for sure. What really struck me about hearing that record was the vocals and the heart in the songs. I'm sure you've heard the comparison before, but at the time, the first thing that I thought of was Bradley Knoll in just the kind of soulfulness of your vocals. Also, when I heard that record, I was about 17 and we were just a few months into the Iraq war. And so when you're singing, it's three years till I'm 24 and I don't want to die in a nuclear war. That was what all my friends and I were feeling. We were afraid of the draft and we were watching our our kind of insulated view of the world fall apart around us and uh you know it just it really just hit at the right time what do you remember about injecting a little more point of view and establishing what would become your voice as a writer at that time it's mainly just growing up yeah not to say that a 20 year old is growing up (laughs) because i for sure wasn't grown up at 20 i mean i don't think i really consider myself grown up till i was about 35 but yeah (laughs) that's beside the point Yeah, I just think it's a natural progression. Progress was when we finally decided we're not just going to be one kind of band. We're just going to be, we're just going to write music that we like. Yeah. You know, we didn't like consciously stop playing mostly ska. Yeah. It's just natural. We didn't want to only do one thing. We just 
wanted to play different styles and find our own voice. And as far as like things that I was singing about, that's just the way I felt at the time. Yeah. You know, just things that I saw in in the world and uh, trying to express them. I can appreciate that. And it's funny that you say, you know, it just kind of happened as far as your evolution, because first band that I was in at the time, when we all kind of discovered you guys, you were a primary influence in us changing our name, retiring all of our skate punk songs, and saying, we're going to now make limitless music, just whatever comes out. We're not going to go, oh, that doesn't sound like us. We're just going to do whatever happens. You just hear something that you've never heard before and go, oh, fuck, why are we putting ourselves in this box? You know, I'm glad that you're able to appreciate that as kind of a stepping stone album. You guys strike me a little bit as sort of like the propaganda of the ska scene that like you, you came out of that. Interesting. But you always had this sort of, we're going to keep pushing the boundaries and always strive for this musicianship and always strive for this message and just be the black sheep of that scene. Mm. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I've never heard that comp before, but it's totally legit. <laughs> I'm not a huge propaganda fan, but I respect them completely. Yeah. I've heard a lot of them, especially way back in the day in the van. Yeah. You know, some of the guys in the band were big fans of theirs. And yeah, that's respect. Thank you, Sam. And appreciate the stuff you said about us influencing your band and your music. That's cool. That's cool. It's cool to yeah. hear that we have some sort of little fingertips in, in other genres maybe expanding their their realm a little you know yeah and i think that's the coolest part is that it's not in a direct way of like oh you hear no effects for the first time and you're like "Ooh, i want to play that tempo you know but when you hear something like our expanded's or like early thrice and you go why aren't we pushing things you know <laughs> why aren't we challenging yeah. it you know that to me is even cooler yeah i mean that's the if someone takes that away from our music i think that's a lot cooler than trying to just play something that sounds like us like yeah take the what we're going for take the vibe of being free and making your own style you know yeah there's sort of an ambition in that there's sort of like a hunger that as a young musician was really inspiring i mean i've seen you you are a virtuoso guitar player i mean you can shred there's got to have been people you heard as a young musician that went holy shit like i need to step up my game oh yeah this is kind of rando but one of the people I've seen live more than anyone else ever is Joe Satriani. Oh, yeah. The shredder guitar player. Yeah. All instrumental, you know. Um, my dad loves him, and I do too. No lie. Yeah. I, I love him. I, I like a lot of that shredder shit. That's cool. <laughs> it's like guilty pleasure. But yeah, seeing him play live, like I've seen him play, I don't know, like seven or eight times or something. And like it's totally nothing like you know what the kind of music we play at all at all yeah like there's nothing in it at all but his level of musicianship it's kind of one of those things where you see someone like that especially when i was young you see it and you're like oh shit like that's like that's what a master looks like i'm not even close yeah i'm not even close and for some people it could be discouraging but i'm naturally very competitive and so i saw it and while it's like scary because there's so many like trying to learn sweet picking hybrid picking all that kind of stuff it's really tough at first and very frustrating yeah but um yeah it just it just shows you like there's levels you know what i mean and then like songwriting wise a night at the opera the yeah, queen, queen. Record, like unreal 
as a composition i mean for me it's one of my top five albums of all time yeah uh, from a compositional perspective like it's a, a concept record and the way all the songs flow into each other and just the level of composition is incredible i mean freddie mercury of course known for his vocal stuff but every guy in that band is such a ripper and they all sang people didn't realize that they yep. all sing those harmonies you know brian may that the song 39 is brian may sings it oh it's incredible prophet song just ridiculous that song when is I nuts heard that record with, i was like in my the whole like 20s acapella breakdown in the middle oh, and yeah <laughs> oh, dude unreal i listen to that almost every day like it's it, it blows my mind when I first heard that, I mean, it took me a long time. I don't really know why, but no one ever got me into Queen. But then Joe, our bass player, played it. And I we were in the back of the bus. And I remember laying on the floor back there. It was real late. We were driving to Louisiana. And um, he played. And when Prophet Song came on, I think we all we all smoked a bunch of weed. We were laying there. When Prophet Song came on, like, I just started, like, kind of laughing and crying at the same time. Yeah. I was just like, this is... I've never heard anything like this. And like, you know, the speakers are on the wall. So it's like really, really hard pan. It sounds like, you know, that's flying all around your head. Yeah. Yeah. That. Now I uh, know. Oh, <laughs> unreal. And uh, Shape of Punk to Come was a big one. Yeah. As far as like when I, you know, I was already young in the band and hadn't done much. But then, you know, I mean, that came out in 1998. You listen to it now. It's still like it's timeless, like legit. How many hardcore bands put out an actual timeless record like how many punk or any kind of bands in the 90s put out a timeless record? Yeah. There's not a ton. They usually sound pretty dated. I mean, that, that record is still still amazing. So there's a couple. I love what you said about Queen specifically coming to it almost later. Because I had the same experience. Mm -hmm. I came across Night at the Opera, Day at the Races, and Pet Sounds when I was about 23. It's just a such a eye-opening experience you know sometimes uh not hearing a seminal record like that until you're i mean you're still really young 23 but until you're like a young man or a young woman like sometimes it's almost better that way because a lot of the records that i listened to when i was a kid a lot of them i still love but but i never took much inspiration other than maybe subconsciously because it's stuff that my parents had played and like to me it was like played out and i wanted to listen to my own shit you know what i mean i wanted to like find my own musical treasures or whatever so so like a lot of beatles records like when i listen to them you know because my mom that's like all-time favorite she got she saw them when she was 12 oh, wow. years old like full full on she has a room in her house a beatles room um and going back to those records later I was I found I felt like I found stuff in there that I never noticed as a kid, but that I yeah. didn't listen to because I'd heard it so much. So sometimes when you find a record like that, like Pet Sounds at twenty three, like it blows your mind more than it would because now you know what it takes to play that. Or, yeah, or and in that's your mind, the key. You know what it takes to be that creative. You know, you're just like, it's amazing. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Is not just being a child and hearing a song on the radio or your parents music or whatever but once you've been a musician for a while and you understand the mechanics of it yeah and a part of the song comes on that maybe you've even heard before but you're listening critically and you go wait how they do that <laughs> you know and yeah. you got to rewind shit or like when you said you you kind of laugh cried at queen that's my favorite experience like i'm an mc as well and so <clears throat> 
when I hear a rap record, and I'm not talking about a funny punchline, but when they mm-hmm. put together a multi-syllable rhyme that is so unique and so clever mm-hmm. that I would have never thought to put those words next to each other, I will laugh out loud, and that is my favorite reaction of like, oh my god, how the fuck did you come up with that? You know? Hey, yeah, I dig that, man. I dig that. I feel the same way with guitar phrasing and other just multi-instrument stuff. Like when you see someone do something you never heard before, like there's a lot of like young players right now, like people under 30 or just around that age that are just like, to me, it's like a whole new golden age of guitar. Yeah. But now music is so fractured and so niche everywhere that you wouldn't just hear about them unless you were into that realm but i i understand i I see some of those people play and i i feel the same way i gotta level up you know yeah but i just went on a another wu-tang deep dive this morning on my way to swim yeah (laughs) oh man it's wild what's your go-to uh wu-tang record i mean 36 chambers yeah it's gotta be you know what the the funny thing was is i went and listened to all my favorite ones off that record and like some of the beats on that, that was RZA, I mean, unreal. Like, just yeah. some of the way he used the samples and just, like, the chaos of some of it, like, because he didn't know how to play any instruments yet. Yeah. And just the sample layering and, and some of the loops, they're not, like, solid. Like, they're not, like, a perfect four bars, but it sounds amazing, you know? It's, like, a stuttery almost feel. Not quite Jay Dilla level, but it doesn't loop perfectly, you know? You're right, though. There's, like, an there's an imperfection that creates sort of a dissonance in, as much as I love all of their catalogs and spinoffs and everything in it, there's a certain magic about the imperfections mixed with the aggression of them doing their first record and being that hungry and, like, in your face about it that's just... For sure lightning in a bottle you know for sure absolutely and like no one had done that as far as have that many mcs in one band and the way they they trade verses and sometimes the verse are really short but it's not like a it's not really interstitial they're not like playing off each other some of them have choruses but a lot of the songs on that record have no choruses it's just like bars 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 but strangely i'd never really listened to wu-tang forever yeah and I tried to listen to it today. The beats are so subpar in comparison. It's like, it sounds like, like a 12 year old on GarageBand. <laughs> yeah. It's blasphemous, not- but honestly, I, I don't like that record. I mean, it's got some songs, but I, I fully agree with you. Yeah. It's got some songs, but really it's like 93. Cause liquid tours was the next year, 94. Yeah. That and like Iron Man and Cuban links and just those first few records with the rawness. That's where it's at. Yeah. And grave diggers. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know about Grave Diggers? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, my god, that, incredible! And, Some of his beats on there are amazing. Actually, my my favorite shit the last couple of years from them it has been Zarface. I don't know if you've listened to them, but it's Inspected Decks' new project with Esoteric and Seven L. It sounds familiar, but I guess not. I gotta look it up. Who's the producer? Seven uh, L. And um, no, no, it's okay. It's just Esoteric and Deck trading bars, but it's like you said about the first record that there's no choruses ever. It's all like comic book references. They've got their own Zarface like comic book character and graphic novel and shit that comes out. And like their first record you open, it's got this massive pop up of the character. And they've done like whole collab records with like Doom and with Ghostface. And um, yeah, it's super cool. Oh, I gotta check that out. Sounds right up my alley. I'll, I'll link you. Anyway, I 
I got too excited about that. I want to get back into your shit, though. Speaking of, like, leveling up, the thing that happened with the resignation, there's a couple things here that really sort of, I feel like, kicked off, you know, where you guys would end up in the future. One, Steve officially joins the band. Yep, um, yep. I, I read that he had sort of played with you guys while you were writing and demoing on progress, but he's officially in the band. He's co-writing with you. We're pushing a little more progressive in this and embracing that fully by recording live. Yeah. And that really became the thing I, I felt like that set you guys apart was that you were doing shit that you couldn't just put on a click and play to. It was about the back and forth and the chemistry and the push and pull Again, I totally did not get what I was hearing when I first heard that record. <laughs> but once I dove into it, and especially, I think, probably for other people too, but Overcome was sort of my gateway song for that record because the vocal performance is amazing. It's very stripped down song. The lyrics get you right away, especially at that time. Again, like Iraq and everything that's happening. And maybe it hit different just because of our age and all the fears and you know, insecurities about what was happening, but coupled with the gradual tempo increase and then the key change, it's like there's nothing to it, but the little things you put in there are so magical. It was like, oh my God, like it's impossible not to love this band. (laughs) Tell me what was the impetus for switching the way that you make records from then on? I guess how much of that was conscious and how much of it was just like, you know, we literally couldn't play this separately. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was 100% conscious. Yeah. I always wanted to do it that way. We always wanted to. But Progress was the first record we ever had a real producer. Yeah. And, you know, we would go in, we're pretty green, and we just wanted to listen to what he said. It was Chris Fudich. He also did The Resonation. He also did Mandala. And he's like, I mean, I have so much love for that dude. He's like my recording mentor. He taught me, like, pretty much everything important that I know about recording. And when we went to do progress, I think we wanted to try and do that. And we probably weren't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> because I think we tried at first. I think Chris was like, you know, I'll, I'll let me listen. And then I don't know for sure. You'd have to ask him, but maybe the tempos were pushing and pulling too much. But so we did Chris and I playing, Seagak and I playing at the same time on progress. But then we'd overdub everything else. And most of the time it was, my scratch guitar wasn't that good. Yeah. So, Going into Resignation, like you said, we we had just got Choi the summer before. Oh, sorry, a year and a half before, 18 months before, summer of 2001. And I felt like we had been touring super hard for the last, like, two years before it. And we'd also added Steve Borth, that's right, who was a really talented musician in his own right. And, yeah, we just wanted to do it. We just wanted to play live, you know? I think it was about the commitment of it as well. Yeah, You know, you got to get it right. So there's something to that. There's something to like, you know, you played the whole song pretty well. Maybe you're on the, the third take and like the first two are rough. The third one you're doing really good, you know, and you get to the bridge and there's that like tension to do it right. And I feel yeah. like in some cases that actually adds to it. The other thing was, is that we had our guitar amps in the same room okay. as Seagak. So there'd be bleed on the room mics. Yeah. And it was partially so that we really couldn't overdub something if we <laughs> yeah. wanted to. And you know, you have to like trick yourself sometimes because otherwise in the studio you have so many options and you're yeah, like, it's too ah, easy to cheat. why not just fix this? And once you fix one thing, then now you're re-recording everything. And 
and you lost the whole vibe that you're going for. So we've done every record since that way. I think that what you said about the road is something that I was going to ask about because I've had that experience where, like my punk band several years ago, we dropped an album in 2017. And then listening back to it, I'm like, that is not what seeing us live is like. So we'll play five right. songs without stopping long enough to even count in. And so there's sort of a feeling of like, progress was cool, but now we've been touring on those songs and they don't sound like that anymore. I mean, was there sort of like a, the record sounds good, but it doesn't quite sound like us? Uh, not so much that as just that we had grown so much musically, partially from touring, partially from listening and getting older, getting better at music. We were all practicing a lot. Yeah. And a big part of it, all of us are really competitive. And so going on tour, seeing bands that were bigger and better than us, watching the individual musicians and being like, like kind of what we were talking about, Joe Satriani and, and you with other MCs is just being like, okay, we're like, we got to get there. And then feeling like, no, no, we're good enough to compete with these people, you know? Yeah. And wanting to prove it. And that's part of the reason for recording live too, is sort of like throwing down the gauntlet. This Top is what that. we got. This is, <laughs> this is actually us. This isn't all chopped up and sound replaced. Like there's literally no edits. Drums, yeah. bass, guitar, there's no editing, no nothing. That's just us. So yeah, it was, it was partially that like sort of bravado or like wanting to like prove yourself as a young musician. There was uh, an interview I read where you talked about losing your voice on that record it kind of made me laugh in thinking about like, okay, yeah, you guys really are trying to, you know, prove yourselves on this and you're stepping your game up and then like, oh, maybe we pushed it a little too far. Was that on Dinadog? Because there's a part where at the end of the song you are pushing your voice past the breaking point and it almost sounds like painful. <laughs> I was like, man, I wonder if that was the, the one where he did it. I don't remember the exact song, but I'm almost positive that at least the one where I realized that my voice was dust was um, the punk one, um, Newsstand Rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was too high for me. A lot of the time I would write songs, you know, we'd be practicing in, in the garage and like I can barely hear my vocal anyway. So yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can sing this high. That's fine. And then you get in the studio and you're like, oh, I, I can't hit this shit at all. <laughs> and then like, what do you do? It's like print it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that one's in drop D. You know what we can do? Drop C sharp or whatever. Like, no. Yeah. So that was really that was really scary. I had to get a camera shoved down my like through my nostril and down into my throat to take a picture of my vocal cords. Wow. That was heavy. Yeah, that's wild. I don't recommend uh, it. I I totally get <laughs> what you're talking about though. And like, okay, well, can we modulate it some way? I had Ryan Green, the the producer, on a year or two ago, and he was talking about that like when they were tracking. No effects, heavy petting zoo. And he kept stopping Mike from singing. He's like, what are you doing differently? He's like, oh, well, on the demo, we recorded it in this key, but now we're doing it in this key. He's like, oh, you got to change it back. This doesn't work at all. And so he made yeah. him, him re-record the song. If it's not in the right key for the vocal, then kind of the whole song goes away. Totally. That's something you learn as you get older, too. It's like, yeah, you know, if it feels a little high for you as a vocalist, like it probably is, just be safe and lower it a half step or a full step, whatever you need, you know? Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way just on stage in front of everybody. Because, I, I mean, when I was young, it was like, Davey Havoc just started singing for the first time and not yelling. And I was like, oh, his voice is beautiful. It's so high and clear, you know. And I'm like 16, so like, yeah, I got a higher range. I could do that, I think, you know. And so I'd be yeah. pushing way past what I could do all the time. 
you listen to me talk and like that is not my vo- my my natural register and so I definitely um embarrassed myself in front of some engineers at the time when it goes to record that song and like you said the guitar amps are not covering your ass and <laughs> uh you're just exposed out there yeah now for me the pinnacle of the band pushing creative boundaries was and the battle begun oh um, yeah more live recording i remember opening it. it has this paul's boutique panorama of you guys in the studio it had more of a improvisational quality more of a there's times where it seemed like you almost caught a jam on tape, you know, and it was just very organic. But I don't know, that album in particular inspired me and my band, like I said, to look at things differently. Did that feel at the time like you really hit something special or was that just kind of the logical next step for you? No, it it felt like we were doing something special at the time for sure. Yeah. It's just more progression, more growth you pretty much nailed it there's a lot more improvisation yeah. we left a lot of parts open in a lot of songs and uh, we just said all right this is the key of this part or this is the core progression of this part let's play within those parameters yeah and i want to say for that record we even got a little crazier and we limited ourselves to three takes for yeah. each song and if one of them wasn't good you just have to take the best one it was like, <laughs> it's like ridiculous to do that but that one we recorded that to tape too and then bounce it to pro tools but yeah 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 so there was a lot of improvised sections in there off the top of my head i i don't know which songs but most of them had at least some small part you know usually it was a bridge or just some you know random little sector yeah i got to see you guys live on that tour and it very much felt, when, when you listen back to it, after seeing what you guys do on stage, it definitely felt more like that. It's, there's more freedom, even while you're pushing song arrangements and musicianship and all these things, it still felt almost like a look behind the curtain at, at the real band. I thought it was funny what you said with the three-take limit. You were on the Take 92 podcast. I started this little uh, studio here in 2005 after the most tedious, monotonous recording session where my guitar player improvised a solo 92 times. So when I started this, it was like a joke. He goes, oh, you should call it Take 92 because that was the opposite of what I wanted to do. I'm like, no, everything first take, keep it. Like vibe, energy, feeling. I do not want overproduced perfect shit anymore. Yeah, man, I I dig it. Our vibe back then, and I mean, I still feel this way now, is like, what we do back then is we'd practice. Like we we used to practice five days a week, so we practice. Yeah, and we'd refine each little part, so that when we went into the studio, it was just like we know what we're doing. Now it's all all about just laying down a take that we feel like represents that song. Yeah. So get all the practice, get all the other shit out of the way. Don't leave anything for the studio as far as the basic parts. Don't leave anything like undecided. You know, we really hashed everything out. And then, like, it's just about doing it. Treating it like a show that you just got to go in and fucking kill it. You know, there's something just about capturing the actual band and their chemistry. Yeah, all my favorite, well, maybe not all, but 90% of my favorite records are all done that way. Yeah. I mean, that's how all all the records back in the day were done. It was, there's no cheating. 
you, you know, like it didn't, people didn't start multi-tracking really until they got 16 track machines or. Yeah. So, so sometime in the seventies and still a lot of bands were doing it all live then because that's like kind of what their vibe was, you know, but there's something beautiful about the human element that comes with playing live together. Yeah. You know, like you, it's not going to be perfect, but we're not perfect. And when you go and see a show, the drummer gets excited at the chorus. He plays a little bit faster, plays a little <laughs> bit harder. Yeah. You know, that doesn't happen when you're just sitting and listening to a click the whole time and really trying to stay on the click. You know, like that's just not what's up. Like you want in an up-tempo song, in like a rock song, a punk song, whatever, like you kind of want that chorus to be a couple BPM faster, you know? You want, it feels natural, you know? And yeah. then in the same token, like if there's a halftime part and the drummer like slows it down a little bit and it's also halftime, it's more impactful. Same with more groovy types of reggae stuff. It's like, you don't want it to be perfect. You want it to have that, not slops, but you know, the, the juice. You want it to have a little <laughs> yeah. bit of that grit, the grime, you know? That funk. There's a, a bridge or two on that record that, that I know exactly what you're talking about where it almost showcases Chris a little bit and he just really fucking lays into that that groove and you guys really let it swing extra hard and it probably does slow down a bit but there's something magic sure. about a record that just feels like the band and like I said when I see you on stage I feel like I'm getting the same you know the same thing the same band it's great um, yeah, wh man. when I did see you guys there I picked up this record Love You Moon I didn't even know that you had uh, any solo music out? I think it had probably just dropped because it was just it was just there at the merch table. Man, what year was that? I had to go through like I googled a million shows, but it was I think it was at the Hawthorne Theater in Portland in '08. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I just wanted to address this because you don't necessarily have a ton of solo stuff. I'm not sure how well known this project is, but there are some phenomenal performances on here i mean songs like to kill for you or the last words of uh nicholas berg i mean th there's just some some really really powerful songs thanks sam yeah like i said i, I really relate to your lyrics and i cannot cover your songs because you're a brilliant singer what made you strip it down like this and not bring these songs to the band oh you know someone asked me that the other day in an interview it never occurred to me, hmm. you know, all these songs were written on acoustic and uh, some of them were, by the time I record them, were already like five years old. Oh, wow. Um, and a lot of this stuff is like, were originally like poems or just like prose that I'd written in my journals and I just like put chords to them. So they never felt like an RxB thing. You know, RxB songs like 90% of the time came from at least Seagak and I jamming, writing something. Yeah. Most of the time, Seagak, Choi, Joe, and I all jamming. Um, so it just, yeah, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the vibe for RxB, you know? I wondered that because it sort of feels like a, a bit of a loose collection of styles, you know? And so you saying that it was written over the course of years, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then coming out of that, is when you guys officially started making records as a four piece and Mandala is 
<laughs> I don't know. There's just this great upward trajectory where you guys somehow retain your core sound through all of this, but with each one, gets a little more progressive, a little more refined, and the production too, because coming off a couple really raw sounding records, this is still a live record that feels like the band, but it also does feel a little bit punchier, a little tighter. There's something different. What was the approach to production on that that differed from the last two? No difference. Really? Yeah, I would say the main difference was we brought Chris Futerich back. Yeah. And yeah, obviously without the horns, the songwriting changed a little bit because we didn't have to like leave room for that. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just the writing changed a little bit because it was like we weren't writing parts that would have horn lines over them. Yeah. You know, so it changed a little bit. As far as the sound of the album, a big part of that was the place we recorded called The Mouse House. It's a house in Altadena, California, that was converted. It's, it's rad. I don't know if it's still there. Seagak and I were looking it up on the website the other day when we were jamming, and it looks like the website's up, but it hasn't been updated in years. Like, it's an old, what is it, WordSpace? I forget. Oh, like WordPress. WordPress. Yeah. It's like an old WordPress. Like It looks like MySpace, like, for real. Yeah. Anyway, it's an old house, pretty big house that... Whoever had lived there before had taken it, the whole living room, and knocked all these walls out. So they made this big live room in the living room. So where there would have been like a staircase that went up to the second floor, they just opened that all up completely. There still was a second floor, but they put the stairs like on the side of the room. So you could just like, you know, walk up there to go upstairs. But then it would be kind of surrounded. You know what I mean? Like the, almost like a balcony. But the okay. balcony was what the hallways were on the second floor, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, the room sounds amazing. They had a lot of cool, vibey drum sets that Seagak ended up using for a lot of stuff. Like March of the Caterpillar, you can really hear the sound of that weird drum set they have in there. It was like a big 28-inch kick drum that was, that was really, like, not wow. very deep. Only, like, six, seven inches deep. Really, like, thin. Sounded like a marching kick, but he loved it. Weird. And um, we did isolate the guitar cabinets in a side room i'm sure that had a tiny bit to do with it but also you know chris Futerich mixed it whereas i mixed and the battle begun and so oh, you did chris mixed mandala and so you know we're just going to have different okay. different tendencies mixing wise so oh that makes a lot of sense because i didn't realize until last night that all of those records were produced by the same dude i'm like how they all sound totally different and so that makes a lot of sense that the mixing wasn't always the same yeah different studios for sure that'll make a bigger difference when you're using room mics and room sound yeah you can really hear that the imprint of the studio itself also you know chris was a young man on progress chris was only 28 you know we were 20 he was 28 He'd already done a ton of shit. Like, he was kind of cracking back then. And, um, you know, so he was changing, growing as we were going. Technology was as well. And then with Mandala, we did it to tape and dumped it to Pro Tools just like we had done before. But we were all older, you know, had just new sentiments, different vibes. It was also, like you said, no horns for the first time. So a little bit yeah. different songwriting. But the main thing is, man, like, Chris is so rad. He's such a good dude. He was like kind of the perfect producer for us because he's kind of a hard ass sometimes. Yeah. Like we would play a take and we'd think it was good. And he would just, you know, you just hear him like turn on the little studio mic and be like, do it again. <laughs> He'd be like, nope. 
<laughs> and uh at the time we're like damn dude that's cold dude but <laughs> he, he, you know he he knew it was up it just speaks to his flexibility because we come to him and be like you know the first record progress is like a shiny studio record you know yeah and even on that one he was so adaptive and accommodating to me as i was really not a good singer then i don't consider myself a good singer now i feel like i can <laughs> sing but i don't consider myself a like good singer well i but consider you then, a good singer i was so. not at all like i had no skill no understanding i just like tried to make the notes i also was adamant that i would never use auto-tune yeah so on progress there's no auto-tune on my voice well there's no auto-tune on my voice like well at all actually yeah any of the records anyway he was like okay we can do that matt but you got to sing it right to the yeah. point where like i was you know punching in sentences <laughs> and having to sing that part so many times because like i said i wasn't a skilled vocalist at all i really struggled singing in tune i wasn't that skilled singing in headphones yeah and all that and he was so accommodating i'm sure it was so annoying for him i'm sure he just wanted to be like no no we got it and then just like auto-tune it <laughs> but he didn't and then uh so with those other records where we want to do live like resignation and mandala and we want to do a live he's like sure he's like uh you can do that. You just got to play it right. You just got to do it well. Like, I'm cool with that. That's fine. Yeah. And um, He's like, okay, so, that's what you want. I'm going to hold you to it. Yeah, exactly. He would be like, all right, well, you better not suck. Yeah. And he'd be like, okay, we won't suck. But yeah, he was so down. He was like, he's like, sure. I, you know, he loves those old records too. He loves those old styles. And the cool miking techniques and, and the way that he would come up with, like, a mandala, he put a mic outside. Really? Put a mic in the backyard. There was a pool, but it was winter time. It was pretty cold. We never went in it, but he put it outside, and it would kind of capture this like wind, and there was wind chimes, and it would also capture this like faint echo of us playing. Yeah, you can't really hear it, but at the times when the dynamic down, like it's in there, and you can hear it, you you won't be able to discern it by <laughs> yeah. itself. But, but you it know it when it's not there. The vibe, you know, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I like those little tricks take some weird angle and compress the shit out of it and just kind of bury it in the background. Yeah. Is it true that that record had something like seven hours of recorded jams that you guys whittled down into songs? Yeah, maybe maybe more. Really? Um, yeah, so starting with progress, every recording session, we would leave either two to three full days to just set up and record and just jam. Oh. Just, just make shit up jam have friends into the studio they would jam with us we're recording all of it Futurage would play he would usually play synth stuff he's like he's got this awesome collection of vintage synths so with progress there's like mm, not as much stuff but i still say like about four hours with resignation there's at least that much wow. um battle as well battle i think we only did no we might have done two days but I don't know where those recordings went. I have all the other ones. And then with uh, Mandala, I feel like we took three whole days. <laughs> and what we did was, is we smoke some weed and then make up a story about the song that we're going to create, which we have no idea what it's going to sound like or anything. But we'd make up some like silly story yeah. or, you know, if we want to make this sound like a space that'll take off, goes to the moon, flies around the moon and then comes back and like we want to make sure that when it's got a punch through the atmosphere, we're gonna 
build that up and then make this explosion and then almost silence in space, you know, and then yeah. same thing coming back down. And just little shit like that. One of them was about like dwarves marching up a, a hillside and then having to fight an evil pterodactyl. And, <laughs> and then they, they run away from like some dragons and they go into the Taffy Valley and, and how that would sound. So, um, yeah, there's probably nine hours or so of other stuff from mandala i was actually going through it the other day and there's like full songs i completely forgot that we just never used wow there's several i think it's a trip that some of the songs have these uh almost kind of silly outlines before you start laying them down because i mean i think about the sincerity in the lyrics and so many of these songs are like you know the epic closer are like bring our children home and yeah. Just to th- <laughs> to think that there's still so much, you know, you guys just having fun playing with one another and coming up with this shit is is great that it's like, yeah, we're taking it seriously, but we're not taking ourselves too seriously, you know? Well, the wacky stories were only for the improvised stuff. We'd just be making everything up for three different days. But did you then use any of that in the record? I mean, did you turn any of those into songs that you would keep? No, nothing went on Mondal. Oh, okay. So you're more just kind of doing that to get in the groove and, and like get comfortable and ready to record. Well, the ones off Resignation became the Apotheque record. We took our favorite stuff and we released that. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but we printed like a thousand CDs like 15 years ago of a band we called Apotheque, which That's... is just like the RX Bandit pseudonym jam band. Whoa. So our, our plan was to like release more of that stuff. And yeah, we would do it at the end of the session. So it was, it wasn't really to go into playing. It was more like, all right, we've been not stressed out, but kind of like tension has been high to to play well. Yeah. And now we can just be musicians and just enjoy ourselves. There's no mistakes. There's no nothing. That's great. Kind of a a way to decompress and just be a band again for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. And some of them were like totally ridiculous, but it just feels great. You know, a lot of the stuff like I said, 80% of the stuff will never be, no one will ever hear it, but yeah. it's sometimes it's, well, I, not sometimes, a lot of the time it's really valuable to just make music for yourself. Yeah. Well, before we move on from this record, I have to mention, I <laughs> hope you don't mind. I mentioned that I'm a rapper and about 10 years ago, I sampled that record, the synth line from It's Only Another Parsec at the beginning, the do do did and did and did it, and rapped over that <laughs> in my old group. Right on, so, man, right on. Yeah, Get it. we made a whole song around that, that synth line. I like it. Now, you guys did your sort of misunderstood farewell tour and slowed down for a little bit. I was very pleasantly surprised when Gemini, Her Majesty, was announced. It really just felt like you guys... Hadn't missed a step, hadn't lost anything. I mean, it it continued sort of coming off Mandala as feeling a little bit more produced. I did notice that you guys switched to Jason Cup this time. What was the thought process behind coming at it with a, a fresh producer this time? Just a different vibe. Yeah. Jason's a good friend from years back. Also, I think we wanted to do it a little more ourselves like the way we did and the battle begun so jason didn't really feel fill a producer role so much as an engineer mixer and as a collaborative producer but we mainly produced that record ourselves and of course he had his input and we listened to it 
But yeah, he had no input on songwriting or anything like that. Although he did come up with that really awesome percussion loop for Will You Be Tomorrow. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That song originally had like a completely different drum part. And Seagak um, was just one of the jam days. Seagak was just playing that beat. Jason mm-hmm. took it, looped it, was like, what do you guys think about this? And we're like, yeah, that's sick. That's awesome. I just remember being so happy when that came out, especially when you think the band's gone, to have a, a nice surprise like that. It's like, wow, awesome. And you kind of get all those old feels again, like you get to see an old friend. So I mentioned seeing you guys that year with The Deer Hunter, that being just a really special show for me and my wife and, and my friends. It was crazy seeing you back to back. Yeah, man, that was a great tour. That was really fun. Had you guys known them for a while, or how, how did that come to be? No, not at all. That was a deal between our agents. Wow. I'd never met them. I'd heard of them. I'd had fans of ours tell me, you guys should tour with this band. But other than that, yeah, never met them before, but it worked out. That was a fun tour. I feel like if agents were to pair their artists together, it wouldn't always be that sort of intuitive, I guess, that it was such a good fit. But our agent is super legit. He's not some, like music executive suit dude he's an ex-band member and he knows what's up he's our or he's actually younger than me he's yeah. a younger dude he knows what's up nice. so he was like hey you know what about this band and we listened to him and we're like right on let's do this well we were absolutely thrilled i want to ask cool. i've been seeing you post a lot of you know videos of stuff that you're working on you had mentioned to me before that you were cooking up some instrumental music as well you know, what do you have on the on the horizon? What are you looking forward to right now? Yeah, my other, my little lo-fi beat side project just put out a record the other day. It's called Geez, dot, dot, G-E-E-Z, dot, dot. <laughs> anyway, yeah, man, I've been working on a lot of stuff in the last 18 months of not being able to do anything as far as play shows and travel. A lot of solo stuff. Hoping to have my new solo record out by the end of the year and probably in the winter. Um, but we'll see because I kind of also want to be able to tour when it comes out and yeah. I'm not going to be able to. Well, maybe, maybe. Fingers crossed. But um, we've been slowly putting together songs for a new RX album. Nice. We've got five songs. Everyone's all spread out now. Only I live in Long Beach still. Okay. So it takes a little bit more time, but man, it's felt so good to write with those dudes again. And... Um, been slowly working on a sound of animals fighting record as well nice don't have any timeline for that just been putting together stuff pieces pieces here and there now your solo record that you mentioned is that in the vein of love you moon or is that something we haven't heard anything like this yet oh well i put out a solo record two years ago it's called 2019. Um, oh. It's just my name, Matt Embry. It's like that. Full band stuff. More, I guess, a little more psychedelic, a little more tech. Probably a little more guitar-oriented than the Bandits. And it's mostly three-piece, mostly one guitar stuff. Are you doing um, all the instrumentation yourself? Yeah, I play all the instruments except for drums. Cool, I'll look forward so, to that. that sounds like, like... So the new stuff is more like in that in that vibe instead of like Love You Moon vibe. Okay. Well, it sounds like I got some homework to do. There's another uh, another gem in your catalog I wasn't aware of. Check it out, bro. Yeah, thank you so much for working this out with me and 
Yeah, it really made my day. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really like talking to you. All right, that is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Huge thank you to Matt for coming on and indulging me being a fanboy. I may have trimmed a little bit of that out because I was a little bit giddy when we were talking, but I had a great time. We will be coming back to you with Todd Kowalski, the rod from Propagandi. But for now, I'm going to play us out with a track from RX Bandits, the closing track, actually, from Mandala, the one we talked about. It's called Bring Our Children Home or Everything is Nothing.